Well, good morning, church. It's great to be here with you today, those who are with us in the building and those online. It's our pleasure to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords together with you. I wonder if this morning there are any know-it-alls in the room. Spouses, stop elbowing each other. I remember, and I, I don't remember the year, uh, some of you will be able to quickly correct me, but it was the year that the Phillies won the World Series, uh, 2006, 7, 8, somewhere in that window, and 8, there you go, I knew, I knew some of you would have it on the tip of your tongue, <laughs> Vernon helped me out. I remember that year, and it's always around this time of year, football starts up and fall begins, and you start to talk about, you know, postseason baseball, and I have grown up conditioned as a good Phillies fan to just believe that in every single season they're going to break my heart in some way. And that year rolled around, and we got some amens there, <laughs> that year rolled around and I remember I was out on the field and I actually kind of remember it was, uh, it was a Thursday, it was a walkthrough before a game and one of the assistant coaches that I coached with is a big Phillies fan and he said, I think we're going to do it this year. He's like, I, I really think we are. And, and I said, absolutely not. There is no way. I was personally, I'll admit this, I was not a fan of Charlie Manuel. Okay, things have changed. Him and I have reconciled. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. But at the time, I just didn't think he had it in to uh, lead the team to a World Series. And I remember saying to my friend, there is no way, as long as Charlie Manuel is the manager of this baseball team, that the Phillies will ever win a World Series. Did you ever speak too soon? <laughs> Only to find out that maybe you didn't have all the information that was needed, realizing that maybe the original statement that you made was uninformed and un. Helpful. There are many matters in life where our self-perceived knowledge on a subject can get us in trouble. Some of you know this as foot-in-mouth syndrome. And many of us are infected by it, uh, myself included. But hey, we're not in bad company. Even some of Jesus' closest disciples Struggled with this sometime, did they not? We remember the testimony of Peter. Lord, I will never deny you. And what happened? Of course, he denied him. And perhaps it's for this reason why Paul consistently stuck with the basics. Because in the end, what we come to know, if we are truly in the business of trying to know anything at all while on this earth, is that there is so very much that we actually do not know. And so in view of that reality, out of the mouths of the prophets, out of Jesus' own mouth, and out of Paul, come this resoundingly unifying message that the just shall live by faith. What does Jesus say to the doubting Thomas? Blessed are those who believe without seeing. And in his second letter to the faith community in Corinth, Paul encourages them to walk by faith and not by sight. 
Already in early portions of his letter to the first Corinthians, which we've been studying together for a number of weeks now, Paul has said to them, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And even a few pages later in, this, later in the same letter, Paul reiterates in chapter 4, verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Some of us know Shakespeare, even Shakespeare stole a bit from Paul and echoed similar sentiments. He said this, quote, a fool thinks himself to be wise, but a wise man knows himself to be a fool. There was a problem that was plaguing the Corinthian church. One that Paul desired to address. It was a matter of utmost importance. And it is a problem that in many ways still infests faith communities throughout the world today. Friends, sometimes knowledge, what we perceive to know about any given subject, gets in the way of our ability to love God and others while also disrupting the spiritual growth of another sister or brother in Christ. And Paul is going to set out to correct this reality in the next portion of his letter. It is a big portion of 1 Corinthians, one that will take us from chapter 8 all of the way to chapter 11. And Paul's issue here today in chapter 8, where we will spend our time, is meet sacrificed to idols. For us today, this might include any myriad of issues, including but not limited to what we eat or drink, where we choose to dine, how and when we might spend our monies, our community affiliations that we're involved in, political associations, organizational memberships, social media usage, or otherwise. Take your Bibles today, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We are going to cover the whole chapter today, all 13 verses. Paul will first ground his appeal in love. He will then build his case on the foundation of God in Christ. And finally, he will offer a conclusion that communicates how real love is employed in communities of faith. Before we read our text today, let's ask the Lord to help us in our time together in 1 Corinthians 8. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your living and active word, and we gather around it today as a community of faith, eager, knowing that your spirit is at work, that you are at work, and you intend to teach us from your word. Lord, you desire for us to grow and there are morsels here for us today that will nourish, nourish us, nurture us and help us to know how we can leave this place better equipped to love you and love those that you bring into our lives this week. Father, we pray now that your word would go forth, that it would produce its intended fruit and that you would be honored and glorified as we celebrate its truth and its power together as a congregation today, giving glory to you for the God that you are. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul writing. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, lowercase, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died thus Sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Heavy words. Meaty words, no pun intended. <laughs> there were a lot of spiritually minded and religious people within the Corinthian church who had a perspective, a view, an opinion, a position on what to do with this subject of meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Yet, under the surface, this is a difficult and complex matter. On one hand, you had recent converts to Christianity that were coming from Judaism, where meat sacrificed to idols would have strictly, chapter and verse defensively, been forbidden. On the other hand, you had former pagans, who worshipped false gods in their local temples, often with food involved, which in their knowledge and understanding from their perspective would have been food that was sacrificed to deities. 
Paul is framing these matters very differently for recent pagan converts in the Corinthian church. What was once considered food sacrificed to deity is now more accurately described as food sacrificed to idols. Not everyone who was providing knowledge in these situations understood or even took into consideration these multi-layered complexities. For the one who was a recent convert from Judaism, there were strong feelings of guilt or shame that might accompany their eating of this sort of meat. For the one who was recently converted from worshiping false deities in temples, eating meat sacrificed to idols, brought back memories of false worship in these temples. Worship that was sometimes steeped in prostitution, child and other ritual sacrifice and other troubling reminders. Paul's approach for those who thought they possessed knowledge on these matters was not to allow their knowledge to make them appear puffed up as if they had all the answers. Instead of knowledge, it was better to start with love. Love, friends, is the greatest tool we have for building one another up. And when issues of the day arose that threatened to divide the church and lead people astray, Paul is showing us how to stay faithful to the task at hand, the building up of Christ's church. Paul knows that the Lord is using him. He shared this already, communicated it in his letter. The Lord is using he and Apollos and others to build up, even as master craftsmen, the people of God in Corinth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Taking care how he built. It was Paul's desire to model and demonstrate how to build with the leathermen of love. Later in this same letter, Paul will encourage the church to imitate his actions. Actions which he will soon communicate, give priority to love above knowledge. Look at his words again in, voice, in verse 2. They're very poignant. He's shepherding the people of God towards humility. Look at what he says. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not Yet know as he ought to know. Church, instead of possessing knowledge on any given subject matter, we should concern ourselves far more with the love of God and be satisfied in the glorious joy and security that comes with being known by God. For this is the case who we are known by is far greater than what we might perceive that we know. What does he say in verse 3? But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. What a beautiful reminder, church, 
for all of us, whether we're here, whether we're watching online, those who love God are known by God. This morning, Scott read this this beautiful lead in to the song that we sang that followed it. And isn't it amazing to know that that same king who died for us knows us personally, intimately, every single one of us. Paul's challenging the church to face these matters with a posture of love and the security that whatever the outcome, we who are believers are all known by God. In this case, someone could make a plea, build a defense, reveal all sorts of knowledge, even knowledge grounded in Old Testament law. And the person they're trying to convince still might not be changed in their convictions about whether or not they can eat food sacrificed to idols. If the governor or the posture of either party in the conversation is rightness or knowledge, instead of love, we get division and separation and a severing of relationships more often than not. However, if the governor or the posture of the parties involved is love, there is far less chance of disruption, division, separation, or a severing of the relationship. I have a mentor friend who uh, every once in a while I like to call and whine and complain to him. Sometimes mentors are really good for that. They're also really good at rebuking you when you start to do it. And uh, he has made it his practice over the years to stop me in the middle of one of my gripe sessions and to say to me, Chris, let me ask you a question about this topic or this situation or this issue. Is it more important right now for you to be loving or right? Loving. (laughs) It's always the right answer. What I've come to find over the years is for the believer, friends, it is far more important for us to be loving than to fight to be right. Jesus makes us right. That's what he does. And then he commands us to live a life sold out to the love of God and the love of neighbor. So as we have studied this book, we've asked this question over and over again, how we might uh, live as the church and function as the church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world. Well, if we desire to live as disciples and function as Jesus together as his church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world, then we give priority to how we love rather than what we know. We say that, and yet we know the one who we're fully known by. And that's important if we're to understand how to apply the love that we've been called to show, the very love that he himself is defined by. For the Bible says this, God is love. God is love. And Paul will now remind us, Of the knowledge on which we are building. 
We don't just do this in and of our own knowledge. There are some common unifiers. Some in the Corinthian church had made light of this matter. It's just meat. Just eat it. Who cares? It's wrong for us to look at our brothers or sisters who struggle with certain areas of life where we may enjoy freedom and to try to dismiss their struggles with our perceived knowledge. There's common knowledge available, a sure foundation available for the church. And it's on that foundation on which we should be building one another up in love. Look again at verse four. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence, end quote, and that, quote, Paul is quoting here, there is no God but one, end quote. Paul, again, is bringing the people of God back to the basics the intellectual knowledge that's shared among most in the faith community. But it's not always fully realized or applied in the same manner in every believer's life within that faith community. To the one who had worshipped idols, their conversion to Christianity brought with it intellectual awareness that the idol or idols they had worshipped for years had no real existence. Intellectually, they got that. They understood that. Yet, their past experience still deceived or was influencing them. And their ability to fully apply and practice this principle was different from a believer whose past was not littered or marked with past idol worship. For the one who had converted from Judaism, Paul offers at the end of verse four, if you recognize that, you should have recognized it because Paul is pulling from the Old Testament, from the book of Deuteronomy, from a very popular prayer among those who came from Judaism. It's called the Shema. And the Shema was a prayer that was regularly recited by one who was of the Jewish faith. So then, perhaps the argument to the converted Jew would have been, quote, you say it yourself every morning. There's no God but one. You have the intellectual perception that our God is the God of gods, lowercase g. Just eat the meat. It's not really that big a deal. And it's interesting what Paul does here, isn't it? Because he's addressing the Shema but he is also making a significant contribution to it, is he not? In verse 6, a beautiful, powerful, and true addition to the sacred prayer of the Jews. Look at verse 6 together with me. Let's look at this incredible thing that Paul does. And you see if you can pick up the addition as we read. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So let's look at the original Shema from the book of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. 
And what Paul does here is he notes that we are from God and exist for God, and that we, along with all things, exist through who? Who's the addition? Jesus. Now Jesus is brought into the Shema. And in this, he has sharpened and clarified its truth to now include the Messiah, our Lord. Friends, this is the foundation we build on. One God, one Lord, one Savior, Jesus Christ. And so again, for the recent Jewish convert to Christianity, all of this intellectual knowledge they would have known and shared with others in their faith community. But yet they still would have had a caution or an avoidance in eating meat sacrificed to idols because they didn't want to participate in anything that according to their law would have been considered idolatry. Idols are many. They are crafted by human hands and they serve no eternal purpose. God is one. He does not exist in a temple made by human hands. And his purposes follow his promises, which are eternally true in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. What Paul is showing in verses 4 to 6 is that the foundation we are building on, whether one is able to eat meat or not eat meat, sacrifice to idols, is the same and powerful foundation. So if building motivated by love is of utmost priority, then making sure that we are building on the same solid foundation of God in Christ follows very closely. And if we desire to live as disciples of Jesus and function together as his church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world, then guided by love, we will build one another up on the strong foundation of our only God and Savior. And while this foundation that we are building on is the same, not all of the people uh, that Christ is building through us are. I have not yet in my life met two people that are wired exactly the same way. Have you? I haven't. I mean, I, pe some people are similar, but no person is the same. Not one. There is no singular template available for how to build up every person. Everyone is different. And different people's backgrounds and circumstances and situations can have an influence on how free they truly are to apply the freedom that comes in Christ. And Paul's going to now show us in the second part of this chapter how we might work out our love towards one another. How this really looks. He's going to answer the question, how does this kind of love work itself out in the grit and the grind of our day-to-day -day lives? He's talking about love at work. Take a look at verse 7. Paul's going to reinforce that which he's just explored. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, 
eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. One of the first takeaways, church, that we might gather when we're looking at this verse is how our former associations, us, those of us in this room, how our former associations prior to Christ have the potential to enslave our consciences even after we are in Christ, where others' consciences might be free. Sometimes there is long consequence for the difficult associations or life patterns that we embraced before Christ brought us to himself. And sometimes, church, unfortunately, it's it's not even that our consciences are weakened by decisions that we have made in the past, but rather by decisions that others have made. Decisions that ultimately abused or harmed or hurt. As believers, church, this is important for us to be able to care for one another, to walk alongside of one another, to really be concerned about one another. When possible, we need to be sensitive to the past affiliations and past involvements of our brothers and sisters. And be careful that our freedoms or that in our freedoms, we are not leading someone astray or leading someone towards defiling their conscience. Now, look at this remarkable conclusion in verse eight that Paul comes to. It's like a mini conclusion in this chapter. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. And so often in Paul's letter, we've seen this alignment with Jesus's teaching and we see it again. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 15, he called the people to him and he said to them, hear and understand, it's not what goes into a mouth that defiles a person. Now, this would have been shocking for Jews that were wanting to follow the ceremonial laws of cleanliness and purity and what they were to eat and all of those things. This would have been shocking. And Jesus says, it's not what goes into a mouth that defiles a person, but what? What comes out? This defiles a person. And how many times I've been defiled by letting this out a little too much, a little too quick. And just as outward circumcision no longer carried any power related to a person's identity with God in Christ, so too did Jesus. And now Paul, by his statements, make null and void these food purity laws of Judaism. No longer is it food that defiles a person in regard to our standing before God. What we eat, what we do not eat, it has no bearing on our position before the Father. Paul is placing the priorities of these specific matters under the aim of love and on top of the foundation of one Lord and one Savior. 
When it comes to meat sacrifice to idols or musical style or preference or entertainment choices or even the occasional and responsible consumption of an adult beverage, clothing style or any other similar matter, we are no better off if we do, no worse off if we don't. What is more important than being right about whether or not we can eat meat sacrificed to idols is the principle of love that Paul identifies in verse 9. If in love we are to consider others better than ourselves, then one way we do this is verses 9 and 10. Take a look. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Church, love goes the distance. Love ensures that there is nothing within the patterns of our life or our behaviors that may cause someone who is new to Christianity and coming from difficult past associations to defile their conscience and struggle with their new and budding understanding of one Lord and one Savior. Now, I know some of you are thinking, does this get misused in the church and abused sometimes? It absolutely does. Remember what's at stake here. What's at stake here when Paul was writing is new converts being led astray by these behaviors. As one theologian remarked, he said, quote, This isn't an excuse for individuals with small minds and badly educated consciences to prevent the rest of the church from doing things that are harmless in themselves. Sometimes people from very narrow backgrounds full of rules and restrictions, which have nothing to do with the gospel itself and everything to do with the particular social substructure, try to insist that all other good Christians should join them in their tight little world. But in a case like this, the rule-bound Christians are in no danger of having their consciences damaged. They're not being led astray. They are quite sure of their own correctness. Paul is dealing here with a very different case. End quote. Again, church, the problem here was with Christ followers being led astray or led away from Christ by our failing to consider how current behaviors that we are practicing in freedom maybe in our Christian freedom, inform the consciences of some who have come to the faith from difficult past and circumstances. Does this mean that we have to live carefully around one another? Yes, that is what Paul is saying. And, and I've seen this worked out in my own life as a pastor. I've seen this as a pastor who's coached high school football in a public school, I've been with men who have been careful around me because they love me and they desire to protect my conscience. I've had men that have even asked me when we've gone to a restaurant, hey, 
I'm going to order a drink and I just want to make sure before I do that, that you are okay. And if you're not, it's no problem. Tonight, I'll just have an iced tea. We're talking about this, friends, being careful how we live in community with one another so that something that we do doesn't defile someone else's conscience. We need to be careful that while we're busy filling ourselves up, reclining at the tables of whatever our various freedoms are, that we are not placing obstacles and stumbling blocks before other believers, scandalizing their faith and causing them to fall into crises of conscience. This is not loving. Take the extra step. Be careful that nothing that we're doing may be leading somebody who has a a past that would cause them to be defiled isn't making them stumble in what we're behaving or what we're doing. Just get over it. It's just meat. Who cares if we go to such and such temple and have that meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Those idols aren't even real. To some church, it may have mattered very little. But to others, it mattered quite a bit, even if they led on externally that it did not. There is an extra layer of care and concern that should be practiced among brothers and sisters in Christ. This is one of the ways that we employ love and put it into action in the church. And Paul's now going to further develop the consequence of a cavalier attitude and indifference towards consciences of fellow believers. Look in verses 11 and 12. Very strong words Paul uses. And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their consciences when it is weak, you sin Against who? Christ. There's a sobering reality here, church. Our knowledge, void of love, can be used as an instrument of destruction. Paul will later continue to build this thought out in the book. Even coming to, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm what? Resounding gong, clanging cymbal. Sounds like instruments of destruction to me. And in doing so, not only do we sin against our sisters and brothers in Christ by wounding their consciences, but what does Paul say? Who does he say we also sin against? Jesus. For we are one body. What harms one in the body of Christ? not good for all. So if we're going out to dinner with another believer whose conscience is sharpened against alcohol and perhaps we go out and we have freedom, order an iced tea that evening. In this sense, our consciences should not be tuned towards indulging our own freedoms, but rather our consciences should be tuned towards putting the needs of others before ourself and our own desires. What does Paul say in the book of Romans? Very similar words, does he not? 
For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And so Paul ends this chapter by demonstrating how in a similar situation, he might activate love in the context of his faith community. Look at verse 13. This is the conclusion that Paul comes to. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Church, if we desire to live as disciples of Jesus and function together as his church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world, we will demonstrate sacrificial love by giving up our personal freedoms for the nurturing of those within our faith communities. And as we continue our study of this section of Paul's letter next week, Paul will soon give a clear demonstration of how he is practicing and applying this principle even in his own ministry to the people of God in Corinth. Let's pray. Our team will come as we pray. Father, thank you for the challenge in your word today. Lord, I believe it is our heart's desire to love and to care for one another well and I know that there are many in, in this room or watching online that enjoy various freedoms. Lord, I just pray that you would make us sensitive. Make our minds and our hearts aware of how our freedoms may influence or affect the people that you've called us into community with. And help us lay those things that are no better off if we do or if we don't aside. So that we might continue on in the faith, loving one another, building one another up for your glory, for the kingdom that you've called us into. We will give you the glory as you help us to grow in love. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.